chapter 9. Last week we talked about um, total depravity, but specifically um, to the first point of total inability that a Calvinist um, would hold to, which is the inability to respond to the gospel, that God wants some to be able to respond, but some not to be able to respond. And we began talking about election, um, about how there are times election is used nationally to speak of Israel, and sometimes used individually to speak of Christ, and sometimes individually to speak about a believer. And um, regarding um, uh, believers, the Bible says we are called the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, not his foreordination. And so today we're going to look at some of the verses um, that Reformed or Calvinist groups would use to teach an unconditional election. That God elected some to salvation, but the others he um, either elected to damnation or simply didn't elect to salvation. You know, Calvinists will differ a little bit on that. Some feel that you know, God elected some to damnation. Some say, no, he just didn't elect them, which by default still leads them to damnation. Um, John Calvin, um, he is where the term Calvinism comes from, because he was the one that was one that really made it popular. Um, it's known that he got some of his teachings from Augustine, uh, Augustine in the fourth century, um, but it's been known by Calvinism. And so John Calvin said this, by predestination we mean the decree of God by which he um, determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or to death. And so that's where you see that double predestination from John Calvin himself, that some would be predestined to life, and others would be predestined to death. And so we're going to begin in Romans 9. Hopefully some of you got to um, read that over the past week. Um, but just really to know um, the context of it, to kind of know it all of it, we're going to go ahead and read Romans 9. It's a little bit of a lengthy chapter, but I think it's important to really read it. Romans 9 is basically the crown chapter for those of a reform tradition, those that hold Calvinism to be true. Romans 9 is their go-to um, chapter. There's other verses they go through as well, and we're going to go through those. But Romans 9 is considered like, this is it. There's no getting around it, and don't claim that. Others would be afraid to even teach on it. Uh, Romans chapter 9, in verse 1, um, the Apostle Paul writes, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory 
and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God have taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but Rebekah also hath conceived by one given by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And so those are some key verses right there that says, you know what, God doesn't just, they'll say, doesn't show salvation to any that wills to be saved, but only who God wills to show mercy to. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, having mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will be hardened. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing form say to him that form it, Why hast thou made me thus? Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing you show his wrath and you make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been to Sodom and made it made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness, 
Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion the stumbling stone, and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So that's Romans chapter 9. Uh, and so look at some of the assumptions or the arguments that are made from a reform and Calvinist perspective. Again, other terms often used, uh, you'll see on their websites, is the doctrines of grace. Um, that's to try to maybe not have the attached name of Calvin on it. And, and so but we, the assumptions is that before Jacob and Esau were born, that God predestinated them, that Jacob received God's saving grace because God loved him, but Esau did not receive grace because God hated him. That God chooses who he has mercy on unconditionally. Some God predestinated to receive his mercy, others he did not. That God created Pharaoh for the purpose of hardening his heart, so God could be glorified. Pharaoh could not be saved even if he wanted to, since he was ordained as the reprobate. And so in these, you know, you can see some of the part of this, the scriptures do clearly say, but part of it is taking it, I believe, beyond what the scriptures are actually teaching. Um, the assumption also is that man cannot complain to God that he was unable to be saved, even though God willed it so, and yet it's man's fault. God is the Father, created some people to damnation, and others to have mercy on. Okay? Now we'll look at okay, the facts. Okay? What is the context? What is Romans 9 teaching? Um, the example of Jacob and Esau does not refer to an election pertaining to personal salvation, but to election pertaining to nations in God's overall program. God said unto the mother, um, says, two nations are in thy womb. Okay? okay? Not literally, there weren't going to be like two nations coming out, but they're descendants. You know, that, that they would too would be the ancestors of two nations. Uh, and one would be that of Israel, and then others would be uh, um, coming down through Esau and would be in the land of Eden. Um, now, Genesis mentions no divine hatred towards Esau. The book of Malachi. And Obadiah's prophecy over a thousand years after Esau indicates that the Lord's hatred was against Esau's idolatrous descendants. In the same way, the love for Jacob refers to his descendants who were a sovereignly elected people through whom the Lord's Redeemer would come and bless the world. That God did set Jacob aside called him Israel, and they would be the people of God as a nation. Now that did not mean that everyone part of that nation was saved. That's why the Bible says not all they that are of Israel are of Israel. That, um, that John the Baptist um, um, preaches and Jesus preached when the Pharisees would say, we are of Abraham's seed. 
And then they say, you know, God could make of these rocks Abraham's seed. But that they had rejected the God of their fathers, that they had rejected um, um, Jesus, and, and rejected the Lord. And um, But Israel was the chosen people of God, but someone's not saved simply because they're Jewish. They have to come to a faith in Jesus Christ. But as a nation, they were called the elect. They were elected for God's purpose. Now, Pharaoh was already a heathen, already a pagan. He already had a hard heart towards God. Um, we see that he already had God's people in bondage of cruel slavery. Um, that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh before him also had a hard heart. I was just saying, Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born, you shall cast into the river. Okay, so we see there's already a hardness towards God. So before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we see he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And so when man rejects God, God often makes examples out of them. You know, the Bible talks about how God will even use the wicked as his sword. That he will use one wicked nation to judge another nation. That he would even use other nations as a sword against his own people to chastise them. And so God, whether people are good or evil, God will use it to accomplish um, his grander scheme of things, his, his purpose um, in our life. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so the purpose was so he would not let the people go, so God could continue to do the mighty works in Egypt. You see, if Pharaoh let him go the first time and just let him go, the Egyptians wouldn't really know who the Lord was. And so God already took a wicked man, someone that already had a hard heart, and then hardened it more to prevent him from letting the people go. That the Bible talks about that the Lord turneth the hearts of the king um, whithersoever he will. And that's the, often the verse that will use to say, say, look at that. But no, it's just that you know, if God will accomplish his will through the kings, through presidents, through those in authority, in their rejection of the Lord. You see that with Nebuchadnezzar, you see all throughout scripture. You know, and God will use different people to fulfill Bible prophecy. And, and so God does at times harden hearts. But this does not mean God hardens someone's heart so they can't get saved. Now we do see, as we'll get to, that God does at times blind people. And so you could say, hardens the heart to keep someone from believing, but it's after they already rejected, and we'll get into that. Exodus um, 9.16 says, In very deep for this cause, man, this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout, what? All the earth. As yet it saltest thou thyself against my people, that thou will not let them go. Okay, so a Calvinist will look at Romans 9, 
to say, you know what, the gospel is exclusive for only a few elect. Because the Bible talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But what was the purpose of God hardening Pharaoh's heart? That his name wouldn't be declared just to a few. That his name would not be declared only to Israel, who are the people of God, who are God's called people. But that the gospel wouldn't only be to them. That his name would not only be declared to them, but that Egypt and the rest of the world would know that Jehovah is Lord. And so Romans 9 is actually more trying to show an expansion that the gospel is not just for the Israelites. That God's name is to be made known throughout the land of Egypt and throughout the world. Uh, verse 20, it says, He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. That was, if we read the context, it was God's command. He said, do this. And the, and the servants of Pharaoh that feared the Lord, that feared the message God was giving them, obeyed. So they weren't pre-elected to not obey. They had a chance to obey, and some of them did. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Okay? Some Egyptians obeyed, and some didn't. And so people are getting to know in Egypt who the Lord is. The Egyptians that feared the Lord were spared. And we know the Bible even talks about the Egyptians' hearts were hardened as well, but some of them that feared the Lord. God's spirit. Exodus 14, 4. Um, Bible says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow, follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The whole purpose of God raising Pharaoh up wasn't to restrict the gospel from a people group, but to show that God is the Lord of all. Whether Jew, whether Gentile, he's the Lord of all. He's worshiped to all that call upon him. Verse 17, and I behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will give me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots. And upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon the horsemen. And so we see Pharaoh wasn't created unto condemnation, but since he rejected the Lord, God rose up the power to still be used for his glory. The Egyptians that heard the word of the Lord, again, were spared from death, but those that regarded not the word of the Lord, their servants and cattle died. The result of God using Pharaoh was that his name would be declared throughout Egypt and the whole world. And so he desires for his name to be known everywhere. This shows that God wasn't limiting salvation to a few, but was expanding it to the Egyptians and around the world. Another verse, one of the verses in Romans 9, it uses to show Calvinism is often what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with 
righteous long suffering of excellence of wrath fitted to destruction. And so it'll say that, you know what, the Egyptians were fitted that God created them unto destruction. That this is why God created the Egyptians for destruction. But as we just saw, some Egyptians were destroyed and some of the Egyptians were not the ones that bear the Lord. And the word fitted in the, is in the middle voice in Greek. It does not mean that God fitted them to destruction, but gives the connotation that one fitted themselves to destruction. That it is man that said, not God. You know, the Bible says, let not man say when he is tempted, that he is tempted of God. Because God cannot be tempted, neither does he lead us into temptation. We see that God did endure with much long suffering. When he could have destroyed them long ago. But he is going to use them to accomplish his purpose somehow. Romans 9.23 um, and, and that, that he might be known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Which he had before prepared unto glory. Even those whom he have called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so they say some people are vessels of mercy, some vessels are vessels of wrath, um, of destruction. But we see that, you know, if God has prepared to be forthcoming, the vessels of mercy would include both Jews and Gentiles. Now, this isn't speaking of individuals, that only some individuals are and some are, but it's a class, it's a group, that both Jews and Gentiles would be able to be saved. It's the overall context, it's speaking of that national election of the Jews, as the chosen people of God, but that God also calls people amongst the Gentiles to receive of his mercy. This is another verse to use, therefore have me mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden. They know it. If God wanted to create a baby and fit him to destruction, that he would be eternally damned to hell. You know what R.C. Sproul, the Calvinist, he even says that, you know what, some babies are alike and some babies are not alike. That some babies, if they die through abortion, they're going to go to the lake of fire. And then those that are chosen will go to heaven. That's his view. He's a Calvinist. I mean, he said it. Now, his wife actually said she disagrees with him on that one. And, uh, but um, let's look at this, okay? It is true that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. This is what the Bible says. We're not arguing against what the Bible says. God does choose whom he will have mercy. It's all by God's mercy that we're able to be saved. It's all by His grace. But who is it that God chooses to have mercy on? You know what James 4, 6 says? God resists of the proud, Pharaoh, for example, but He giveth grace unto the humble. Those Egyptians that feared the Lord, that humbled themselves, God showed mercy to them. Proverbs 28, 13. He that cover of his sins shall not prosper, but he so confess of and forsake of them shall have mercy. And so 
God explains to us who he'll have mercy on. Is it only those so-called preordainists he'll like? No, the Bible tells us who God chooses to give mercy um, to. Uh, you know, there's the verse where it talks about the vessels, um, vessels of wrath and vessels of good use. You know, in First Timothy or Second Timothy, um, we'll get to it. It talks about how we are to sanctify our vessel, so we could be prepared for the Master's good use. You know, Isaiah fifty-five seven says, "Let the wicked forsake his way." And the righteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so you see, God's mercy is conditioned upon our response to him. And you know, the Bible does say, no man seek him after God. You know, there is none righteous, no, not one. If it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for God's Holy Spirit working on us first, we would never seek after God. Okay? That is true. We wouldn't. You know, we would just continue in our sin. But God's Spirit does work, and it's not on the elect only. It's just many do not respond. Many resist the gospel. And we'll be talking about this um, not next week, but the following week, when we talk about irresistible grace. Um, another view of Calvinism, where they say that if you're one of the elect, you will not resist accepting salvation. And if you're not the elect, you can't but resist salvation. But see here, you know what God says, you know what? Let him forsake his way, the nourishment his thoughts, let him return unto the Lord, and God will have mercy. Titus 3 says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we see it's the kindness of the love of God, our Savior, toward man and fear. Not by works that we've done, but his mercy to save us. God desires to have mercy upon all. You look at Romans 9. You look at the overall context of Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. And it's all part of the same thing and, and leading to Romans 9 leads to Romans 10. Okay, so in Romans 9, he talks about the national election, that God's not going to have mercy only on the Jewish people, like so many Jewish people believe. He said, no, that God would blind Israel because they rejected him, and he would show it to the Gentiles. And then it talks about individual salvation in Romans 10. And then he talks again about Romans 11, how he prays for Israel and hopes that um, they would get saved. But we see that in the beginning of 9 as well. But we see God desires to have mercy upon all, not just the select few. Romans 11.30 says, For as he in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Okay? So 
their unbelief. Okay, don't God extend to show his mercy on others? Doing so, have those these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And God desires to show mercy to Jews and Gentiles, to all people. But God has given conditions on how we may obtain mercy. And it's not by our works. It's not by his boasting, look at what we did. But it's by believing, by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. Another big verse the Reformed crowd would use is verse 21. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So the, the, the idea is that here, God can make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Again, always referring to national election in Romans 9. And then he makes application to offering salvation to all. Always using this illustration from Jeremiah to tell Israel that God will do as he pleases. And since Israel rejected the words of the prophets, rejected Christ, that God would turn to the Gentiles and that he would harden their heart, that he would blind them. See in Jeremiah, it says the word was came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel. It seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Say of the Lord, Behold, as he plays in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. So he very specifically says, You know what? Just as the potter has power over the clay, I have power over you. God is the creator. He can do with us whatsoever he pleases. Bible talks about how God is the giver of life and that God is the taker of life. That he's able to do as he pleases. The Calvinists would stop there and say, God pleases to save some and some he pleases to destroy. But I say, let's read on. This is what Paul is quoting from in here. But we read on. And what instant I shall speak concerning the nation, and there's that national, the nation, and concerning the kingdom, to pluck up and you pull down and you destroy it. Okay, you know what? God decided he's going to destroy a nation. He's going to destroy a kingdom. That he can do so. But he goes, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Is that a message of no hope? Is that a message of fatalism? Absolutely not. He tells them, you have a chance. You get to repent. And then at what instant? 
I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good whereof I said I would benefit them. And Lord God gave all these promises to Israel. Some promises were unconditional, some promises were conditional. And we see that God would take away, uh, basically, from being the wills of the gospel from the people of Israel and give it unto the church. Now that does not mean God's plan with Israel is finished. As we read in Daniel and in Revelation that there would be a time when Israel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And he'll be working through and with them again. But in the time being, Jesus said that, you know, you've found yourself unworthy of the gospel, I will give it unto another. So we see the very verse that Paul is quoting from about the potter has power over the clay does not teach that some can be saved and some cannot. We see later in Jeremiah that talks about that God will break the clay in pieces those that do reject them. So even though Israel was plagued, they were capable of repenting. God's salvation of the Jews was not a matter of sovereign election, but based on the individual's faith. As we see in Romans 9, 31. But Israel has followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Romans 10 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear the record that they have a seal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they be ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Remember, God called Israel his elect. But even as his elect, they're not saved unless they individually come to him by faith. The promise of salvation in Romans 10 proves that salvation is for whosoever and not limited to a select of God's choosing. This is right after Romans 9, okay? So it's in the context leading up to it. And the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture said, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. You see, over and over is what Paul is trying to say. That just because you're a Jew does not mean you're saved. And just because he's like for Gentiles does not mean they're not saved. And you know what? God is the God of all. He's the creator of all. And that they, the elect Israel, that they're going to be called the elect as an individual, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, they must have faith. In Jesus Christ. For the same Lord over all is written to all they call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Bible doesn't 
try believing, and if you believe, that's just evidence God chose you. It's not how God tells us to give the gospel. He tells them to go and teach them that if they, if thou shall have faith, that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, whosoever, the invitation is open to all. Revelation ends in the last chapter. It says, the Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, and the bride, talking about the church, said, whoso uh, I'm called into to take of the water of life, that whosoever will may come. When God mocks sinners by promising salvation if they believe in Christ, and then only enable those who be sovereignly elected to actually exercise such faith. This doesn't really make sense to me. There's conclusive scriptural proof that salvation through the gospel and national election are distinct, separate things. And as we're reading in Reformed circles, they fail to understand this. They think anytime it talks about life or election, it's talking about their salvation. But if you look in Romans 11, 28, as concerning the gospel, they, it's talking about the Israelites, okay, the Judaizers, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sins. They are enemies of the gospel. They want to try to obtain their own righteousness by the works of the law. They preach the false gospel. And so as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sins. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sins. And that election being the national election, that God chose Israel. To be the vehicle that the Messiah would come. There's that national election that, you know what, God chose him as a special people unto himself. And for a father's sake, how about Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob, that for a promise is made to them. They're beloved of God, that God cares about the Israelites. God cares about those in the Western wall, they're in their idolatry, and God hates that. But he loves them because he wants them to come to a faith in Christ. Now, many of them are blind. God had blinded them. But why does he blind them? And we'll get to that. But it's because they at first rejected it. And so God eventually brings blindness. But we see here clearly is the distinction. They're beloved of the Father's sake, but they're not saved. They're called elect, but they're not saved. They're enemies of the gospel. They preach the false gospel. But God still cares about them and wants to see their salvation. You see, God's sovereignty does not mean that his desire is always accomplished. Romans 10, 21, but to Israel he said, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. God is reaching out. This really goes into when we talk about irresistible grace. We see that, you know what? God allows them to resist. God is trying to bring them to himself. Not that God is weak and can't, but God in his all power and his sovereignty allows man to respond, to receive, or to reject. John 5.40 says, okay, uh, and he will not come to me that he might have life. He wanted them to come to eternal life, but they would not. 
And he tells him, for had he believed Moses, he would have believed me. For he wrote both me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Another passage you can write down to look up is Psalm 78, verse 34 to 41. Here we go pretty quickly here. We've still got more verses to go over. That's over Romans 9. Um, if there's anything I didn't answer, feel free to ask um, after services. But here's some other proof texts used to teach unconditional election by form circles. And Jesus said that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, but she spake, Lord, you have believed our report, and to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. As a quote of Isaiah, I think Isaiah 7, um, and, and so there's that. And that used to confuse me. I'm like, you know, why would God not want these people to be converted? Why would he blind them? But as we read on, it's just they rejected the prophets over and over and over. They rejected the word of God. And so there comes a time where God will bring blindness upon them and say, okay, fine, you'll be left to it. You see, we look at the broader context. You probably can't read it from there, but I'm um, starting verse 37 um, in John 12. Then Jesus said unto him, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he would go up. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, but she spake, Lord, who have believed our report, and to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they could, should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believe on him. And so we see, okay, well, first the assumption is that God binds the non-elect so they won't get saved. In fact, God blinded Israel because of unbelief. They didn't believe the report of the prophets. They didn't believe the miracles that Jesus performed. And Christ told them, believe the light while they have the light. The darkness was coming. He says, you have light right now. Believe in the light while you have it. You know, in John 1, it talks about how Jesus came into the world, that he is the light, that light of every man that endured the world. That God gives a measure of light to everybody around the world. And he says, while you have that light, believe in the light. And in the darkest of places, you know what? God brings up and calls missionaries to go to places and to give the gospel. And many times the tribes and nations reject it. And they lose that light. That God isn't always forever going to keep on working. We see God sometimes... Draws back 
says, okay, work, I'm done. Told him, you have the light, believe it, you have the light. Because they rejected it, God eventually brought blindness in Israel in part. But then what do we see also? Yet, many of the sheep believed. So everything that makes up that blindness, okay, many did believe. Okay? They turned from that. They rejected their unbelief. And so they were able to believe. Now, as we know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, talking about Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Okay, let's just pretend for a minute that if God, okay, people are born and God preordained that one of those babies would go to hell and one of them would go to heaven, and God permanently blinds someone from the beginning, what would be the purpose of Satan that would be out there trying to blind people from the gospel? There'd be no purpose if God just already did that. But we see that, yes, Satan does keep people blind. That's why we need to get the message of the gospel out. And we don't know how much longer they have. We don't know how many times that person has of rejecting God over and over, and when God's going to say, I'm finished. That's why the Bible says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. While you have opportunity, while the light is here, while the light is given to you, receive it and believe it. Because tomorrow might be too late. In the exception is God finds the non-elect so they won't get saved, but the fact is God finds Israel because of unbelief. They didn't believe. I had it. And we see David Moses, I say, and Ezekiel prophesied of their unbelief, and that Israel would be blinded as a consequence. Um, we're not going to go over all the scriptures, but we see David Moses, we already over Isaiah, but Ezekiel is a son of man that dwells in the midst of a rebellious house. Which have eyes to see and see not, they have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. And so eventually, God does bring blindness. Um, Romans 10, 16, and Romans 11. We, um, we'll, we'll just look at a few of these verses. You can write these down if you're quick enough for you can ask for my notes. I can give those to you. But, um, we see God reach out unto Israel for a long period of time. Uh, we see that God still has not cast off the Israelites. We see the reconciling of the world that you know, anyone can be saved. Israel was blinded because of unbelief. Verse 20. God will draft Israel in again when they believe. Uh, and blindness in part has happened to Israel. Um, all Israel will be saved. There will be a remnant in the end. Where they'll recognize Jesus was the Messiah whom they wounded, whom they were a part of crucifying. And it wasn't just the Jews, the Romans were involved, okay? Both Jews and Gentiles were involved in the crucifixion of Christ. But we'll see that the Jewish people, by and large, will recognize Jesus is the Messiah. And we see that God desires to give mercy to all. 
And so we see that God will blind people during the great tribulation as well, not because they weren't part of the elect, but because of unbelief first. We see 2 Thessalonians 2 8. And then shall the wicked be revealed, talking about the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Okay, there's not blindness first. This is because they shall, uh, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned to believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so God does send a strong delusion. That they will believe a lot. You may wonder how we know when the tribulation period starts, or is it called Daniel's 70th week? How are they going to be massively deceived? You know, if God will bring blindness to them. Why? Because now they receive not the love of the truth. They rejected God worked on them, they resisted, and eventually God brings blindness. So we get the gospel out. Does it say God sends a strong delusion because they weren't the chosen ones, but because they received not the love of the truth? Acts 13, 48, almost done, meaning quickly. Um, this one that confused me for a while. It goes as many as were ordained to be eternal life fully. It's like, okay, that's interesting. It's like, you know what? The Bible is the word of God. We need to accept what God's word says, whether it fits our theology or not. And so, but they brought me a study, okay? Don't just read one verse, but to study it. I was like, okay, if they're ordained eternal life, then they're able to believe. Um, that's why I was reading it as at first. But you know, you read the context, you might want to go ahead and open your Bible there. Um, so you probably won't be able to see all of it. Um, and I'm going to go with some verses that aren't shown in here. Um, but Acts chapter 13. In um, verse... 23, it talks about, shows that God raised unto Israel a Savior. Verse 24 shows that John preached repentance to all the people of Israel. And verse 38 to 39 shows that um, God could be justified, that they all could be justified by having forgiveness of sins through Christ. And now in verse 46, I'm going to read there, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And so we see that the gospel can be rejected. They gave them the gospel. They were calling for the gospel. They rejected it. And in verse 47, shows that the gospel is intended for only for so have the Lord commanded us, saying, I have sent thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And so again, showing the gospels for all men. And so why are men ordained to eternal life? It's because they have the Son. 
Bible talks about 1 John 5, 12. He that have the Son have eternal life. And those people that are ordained to eternal life are believers. You're not going to be ordained to eternal life unless you're a believer. Jesus said in John 10, 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Okay, so some will read this verse and say, Okay, Jesus said, You can't believe, because you're not my sheep. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say you can't believe, because you're not my sheep. It's simply saying, You believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. You look at the overall context of verse 24 to 38. Jesus is pleading with these people that they would believe. In verse 37, in there it says, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Verse 9, she said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, and he shall be saved, and shall go in and find pasture. And so, you know, before I was saved, it cannot really be said, I believe not, because I was not of the sheep. You know, if I was of the sheep, I would be a believer. It didn't mean I couldn't come to where I would believe. A Hindu does not believe on Christ, because he's not of the sheep. He's not a Christian. It does not say you can't believe again because you're not my sheep. When you look at the context, it says that you know, when we do believe, we do become part of his sheep. Calvinists would say that God sovereignly elected some to salvation and that man did not elect for himself. If that's true, how is this next verse true? You know, the Bible says, for, for the right of heaven, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Come about assurance of salvation. To make sure you're saved, that you're saved by grace through faith. If election was just predetermined, how can you make your election any surer than it is? It is alleged by many Calvinists that if election is based solely on God's foreknowledge of the man having faith, then that makes salvation a work of man. That is based on something good in us, that it would be the beginning of salvation by human merit. But the scripture is clear that faith is not a work, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. So the Bible separates that. That faith is not a work. Now Jesus does use an analogy because people always have the mindset, what work can we do that we may receive eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, there's one work. And it's faith that you know you turn around. But um, we see it's separate, it's distinct. But we see it in John 6, 28. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. And you know, it's not about really a work of man, but it's about work of God. God's grace working in man, and man responds with faith. Faith is not a work of human merit, but of trust and believing on Christ. We do not boast that we have believed, but are grateful that God has extended his grace toward us in offering salvation if we believe on Christ with saving faith. 
James says God is not a respecter of persons. Finish. Uh, God bless you. Shake hands, fellowship, be free.